0: Safeguarding in Esports.
1: You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers.
0: Hello, and welcome to Everyone's Business, a Safeguarding Podcast. This mini series of podcasts is part of the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast. In this series, we look at how safeguarding is developing not only here at home, but around the world. We look at safeguarding adults as well as children, and we explore safeguarding in different settings. I'm your host, Ian Brownhill, and today I'm joined in the studio with my colleague in chambers, Dan Kazelko. And Dan's a young man who has a future in safeguarding. He has worked with me on a number of cases, but in his own right, he's formulated safeguarding policies for schools and charities, acted on safeguarding and whistleblowing investigations, and in fact, just like me, works for the Football Association as one of the members of their safeguarding review panel. And Dan's actually recently appeared in the High Court in cases involving safeguarding children and in respect of other forms of safeguarding proceedings. And the reason why we have Dan in the studio today is because Dan has an interest in sports law and esports. And in fact, you probably have already read some of his articles in Law in Sport in respect of regulatory issues. Now, in terms of today, we are talking about eSports, especially as an emerging area of practice. And I'm going to do the absolute unthinkable and start with a very basic question, as in, what is eSports? And I'm sure the answer is it's not me sat at home playing Call of Duty or Civilization 5. No, no. So, Dan, what's eSports for a starter, please?
1: Hi, Ian, and um, thanks for your introduction. So, eSports, yes, you know, in a way, you playing Call of Duty at home is eSports, albeit at okay. a very, very um, <laughs> low basic level. level. Yes. <laughs> Maybe not to judge your kill-to-death ratio or anything like Fine. that in <laughs> Call of Duty. But the way to think of eSports is as an umbrella term for the whole host of video games that have seen a competitive and sporting aspect build around them. And mm-hmm. so if you're steeped in the area, you will see a lot of very high-profile tournaments that you see run in the UK, running around the world, built around different
0: games. And that's really the difference here. Uh, And so when people are building these tournaments around particular games, does it have like a a commercial aspect to it then? Certainly. So in esports and in video
1: games, the king or the real controlling aspect is from the publisher – so the publishers, depending on the game, can exercise a lot of control, a certain amount of control. So you can contrast, for example, just to name a couple of games you might have heard mm-hmm. of, Fortnite. So yep, you've got yep, Epic yep. Games with Fortnite, um, Riot with League of Legends, which is one of the OG, you know, the proper old school um uh, esport games that really brought the entire industry to the heights that you're now seeing it in. And that's probably one of the big differences you might say that we see currently between esports and traditional sports is it's the publishers who are exercising the real control, whereas for okay. us, with our role, you know, in football, it's VFA that is exercising yeah. that control.
0: So, uh, so let me get this right: is there some sort of international body like UEFA, uh, like FIFA, who is in control of these esports?
1: No. Essentially. Um, Wow, okay. So there are bodies like the publishers who are in control of their games, and there are up-and-coming controlling people, let's put it that way. Um, So one of the examples that that is doing quite well currently is the eSports Integrity Commission who um, are very much across border across industry bringing gambling in in a big way so they've got quite a few of the american gambling institutions involved on their side so we're starting to see it but there's a real lack of international control international involvement
0: Mm. of a body that's external to the games themselves so at the moment we i don't want to be denigrating but we're almost in a situation we were in in particular sports 10 15 20 years ago where they're regulating themselves entirely
1: yeah i mean that really is the fundamentally interesting bit of safeguarding in esports right because mm. we have all, well, maybe not me, I'm, I'm a bit young, but we've all seen this happen before in the last 20 years, right? And sure. it's still happening today in so many areas of sport.
0: Well, it really is, to be honest with you. I mean, there are still what I would describe, inverted commas, as mainstream sports that don't have advanced safeguarding systems as we know them. I mean, the, the FA example is obviously huge. There's a huge amount of resources, a huge amount of structure. There's an appellate system, a judicial system, all within the FA – but That's also set into international standards with what FIFA set. So th- th- there's something there. Even the smaller sports outside of football, which is obviously heavily monetized, but you know the International Olympic Committee have standards in respect to safeguarding. They put things in place for every Olympic and every Youth Games. And so now we have another sport, esports, arrive policing itself. Looking at gambling, which seems to be an interesting start. Again, links to the money, I suppose. But uh, I mean, uh, without putting it in a, in a crass way, surely that safeguarding also potentially goes to the money as well. Oh, massively. The the sick itself. I mean, gambling's
1: there. They they deal a lot with um, cheating and max fixing. Is the two big things that we've seen there. But mm. safeguarding. I mean, as with football, frankly, is as big a mm. risk from the from a commercial aspect. If you yeah. have. And this is the real danger here. I, I think it's one of the big things to really look at. You have this unregulated field where the dangerous people who we're really concerned about know it's unregulated and can mm. see the roots in. That's a real risk for the people who are putting money in and for people involved in esports. I mean, the money yeah. thing is a particularly interesting one because esports has grown so fast, and it was really encouraged by COVID as well, when um, of course traditional sports was. You know, a lot of it was not going ahead. And so you've seen a lot of things like venture capital come into esports in a way that you don't see it in the more traditional sports. Um, and the appetite for risk there may be different to the typical funders we're seeing in respect mm. of, you know, football. Um, so yeah, I mean, safeguarding obviously is crucial in its own. You know, it's, it, justification in itself, the protection aspect is so important. But even yeah. if you are an external party looking in and thinking, well, you know, I'm not involved, so why
0: should I be bothered? If you're putting money in, this should concern you too. So uh, just, just help me with this, and I don't really want to show my age now too much, but, you know, I've been playing computer games since I was, I don't know, 10 or 11. But what are the actual... Safeguarding risks how, how, how do the Safeguarding risks Eventuate in eSport What are they ESports Certainly has Some of the
1: Typical features That you see In traditional sports mm-hmm. That make it A safeguarding risk So you've got The things like Relationships with coaches yep. You've got The things like Youth players Being a particular Category of risk So your youngsters Coming in Even You know Below the age of 16 so you have okay. all that in esports, and I mean, I, I have an example. So Fortnite World Cup 2019, slightly out of date figure, but still very useful. Mm. The average age of the players at that competition was 16. So your average oh, wow. age was children, and so you have certainly those features that we we see all the time in typical sports. But also that it may in itself be amplified. But Mm. with eSports, it really is the the online and diffuse nature that brings it to another level. So you've got the toxicity of social media, of private messaging where people don't know who's messaging who, the Mm -hmm. access to those messages. You have the actual toxicity itself that we see a lot in Facebook or on TikTok or on Twitter or anything else. I might be sure my age there, referring to Twitter. I don't know. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with Twitter. Thank you. No, it's very good. <laughs> but um, you, so you're not just looking there at your safeguarding from an, a, a sexual abuse perspective, but a, sure. a emotional abuse perspective, financial abuse perspective. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then maybe linking back to one of the things you raised a few moments ago, Ian, because it's grown so quickly... You have even fewer of the frameworks that we saw, even with traditional sports like football. It's grown so quickly, basically nothing has been built around it. There is no scaffolding. There is no protective layer. And so with this lack of management and lack of framework, these risks, which already are high, are amplified further. And that's where I see the real risk coming from, is it's this nature of it being diffuse where people are on teams in different parts Mm. of the world um, with no real local or centralized oversight.
0: Uh, So let me get this through my head. Uh, And again, excuse me for, um, you know, not, not, not being a proper gamer, but I can remember when I was in my early twenties, me and my mates used to play Xbox online. We'd, we'd have a team. We would fight other teams on things like gears of war, call of duty, that sort of thing. Now, In terms of doing that, setting up those teams and all the rest of it, are you saying that on a sort of professional basis that you can have a professional, inverted commas, sporting team? I suppose it is, take the inverted commas away, it is a sporting team. And nobody really knows who's a member of that team. Depends on the level with that. So the higher up you go,
1: the much more um, formulated teams you'll see. So if you are at the turning between professional and non-professional, you have that lack of control. So if you are in your, I think you'll have been probably in a clan if you were, um, you know, from Gears of War. Yeah. Um, And when you're looking at, you know, pretty well established, but not in the mainstream, in the professional sphere, you will have that real lack of control. But once you get into the teams, into the phases, into the fanatics, into the big, um, you know, groups like that, then you do have, you know, money brings a certain amount of scaffolding, but the scaffolding is all internal to the team. It's, the team is doing its management. The team is doing its protection. There's no external body that is then coming along and saying, ah, 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 don't do that.
0: So so let me get this right. So you've got a professional team. They've formulated um, their approach. They're there. They train together. They may well have a coach. They're being funded by an organisation yep. uh, with a commercial interest potentially. So the, the extent of the... Checking, if you like, checking that somebody ought to be participating in this eSport, is the diligence or the due diligence that that particular sponsor does. Yeah, can be. Um, I I mean,
1: to a certain extent, there is, as lawyers stood on the outside, you're looking at this and thinking, people just come and need to get advice on what they need to be doing, on the policies they need to be imposing, on the DBS checking that they need to be doing on the management of the risk. I mean, you you just referred to coaches. Very often when we think of coaches, we might be thinking of your football coach who's had his professional career, has now come back at the age of 40 or 50. In esports, because it's so short-lived as a massive industry, and I say massive, I mean, it's worth over a billion dollars globally your coach might be 19, 20, 21, 22. So it's a very interesting and different dynamic that you're seeing coming through there. And that's that's not to say you don't see that in traditional sports. The grassroots Mm. football level, you're definitely seeing coaches who might also be playing for the open age team. But you're seeing it a lot more in esports because the people who were there at the genesis of proper globally accredited esports are only maybe 10 years further in. But
0: hang on then. So, so you mentioned DBS checks before. So even if someone set up an esports team in this country and uh, they had a coach, I mean, that coach isn't going to be DBS checked, are they? That's the real risk, yeah. Um, uh, but then it's, it's not transferable abroad anyway. So if you, say, for example, that half of the team is in England and Wales and half of the team is in um, Vietnam or somewhere else, somewhere abroad... I mean, how how does that marry up that that's an international safeguarding nightmare surely
1: yeah that totally is and you you're actually getting close to one of my other areas of interest here which is immigration rules for esports is really difficult because a lot of immigration routes don't see mm. esports as a real sport so you're deprived okay. of your typical immigration route so in america you might not be able to get your p1 visa in the UK you might not be covered under the relevant immigration rules so there is an immigration aspect there about being cross border but if you're on a big team you'll be expecting your members to come to you and start sitting okay. in say or start sitting in Hong Kong or wherever else but you've also got the international aspect of coaches moving across the world as you say mm. DBS checks you get a DBS check here what does that mean for what's been going on for the last 5 years in Hong Kong yeah. um also I know it's an interest of yours in the, the international safeguarding aspect. So, how does in, international safeguarding link up? How do the, the the obligations and rules in South Korea fit as against the um, the rules in mm. the UK?
0: It's it's such a mess for something it's, which needs some level of structure introduced. It's really interesting. I mean, you just mentioned Hong Kong, and what instantly came to mind for me was if you had a team based in Hong Kong. Then the concept of safeguarding is, is different in Hong Kong. It, it yeah, doesn't doesn't you know doesn't necessarily extend to adults. So yeah. if you had adult players on an esports team again, how they would be safeguarded by the state apparatus is it, just I don't know. I don't even know if it exists off yeah. the top of my head. I, I could look it up, I suppose. But uh, one thing that interests me about this, you mentioned immigration and you mentioned crossing borders. So if someone is taken out of the sporting visa scheme they're going into other, other routes of immigration, which will have different focuses, presumably. But there is, I suppose, a little bit of vetting that comes with those immigration mechanisms, or, or, or might someone fall without, outside of them? Might someone be able to get a tourist visa to go and do an esports job somewhere? I mean, it's a really difficult question because
1: every country across the globe is dealing with this in different ways. Mm-hmm. So if we'd been having this conversation, let's say, 10 years ago you essentially would be using the standard immigration routes to get into America. You just wouldn't be looking at your P1 and your O1 visas. Mm -hmm. Um, Today, it's a bit different. But whatever way you're getting into the country and taking these safeguarding issues abroad, yeah, if you go in on a visitor's visa, let's say, because you're you're turning up to do a two-month competition. So typically, if a team rocks up to do a competition in person, they'll Mm -hmm. get there a few weeks before, get there, settle down, and do some you know, preliminary stuff, get training, get match ready, yeah. and then they'll start. So you're seeing this kind of like island hopping across the globe. And for teams that are not massive, that are not the most established ones, that may be how they really exist, is sort of like island hoppers. And right. if that's the way it's going on, yeah, you've got immigration issues there, you've got issues about where is there. Location. I mean, typically you have a group that is formed of a certain nationality. That's quite common. So you'll see okay. if you've got a Hong Kong team, it might be all nationals of Hong Kong, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And particularly in Europe, obviously, you get a lot of crossover in the teams of their nationality.
0: It's, 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 again, it's sort of blown my mind this, I have to say. So, so when you get these, these teams that are forming up, maybe have a national flavour, uh, effectively the overarching safeguarding responsibility for that team is going to be not an international body like FIFA, not an international body like the OIC. You're saying it's a, effectively going to be whatever domestic body they're domiciled in or their their main base of operations is? I mean, that that could be huge. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a, a massive difference in standards. Yeah,
1: it is. There, there is no... I not it's even finding a body that could hold the obligation is the difficult thing. Cool. Because I've I've often wondered I, one of the things with esports, right? If you think about well, what could you have as an esports regulator? Mm-hmm. If you had tennis and badminton, would you say mm-hmm. they should have the same regulator because they're a racket sport? Answer probably no. not. Yeah. And so with eSports, even getting to the stage where there's proper regulation that applies is quite hard. It, it, the, the people who are really exercising the regulation from a cheating perspective, until ESIC mm. and certain other bodies like EsIC came along, um, were the publishers. And so, right, yeah, okay. the publishers, I've started to see reports of publishers doing some certain things in respect of sexual abuse, So I remember reading earlier on this year that riots had banned someone for not complying with their sexual assault investigations that they were undertaking. So there are some steps, but that's so far along, as as you'll know, that's so far along Mm. from what we typically expect for safeguarding. You know, safeguarding is about stopping things from happening rather than Mm. simply acting when they have happened. And yeah, I, I honestly cannot say...
0: Who is the body who's going to be fixed with that? And so you fall back on the national provision. It's difficult, isn't it? Because I suppose, uh, and again, I don't know the answer to this, but are uh, lots of the companies involved multinational companies as well? Uh, yes. Um, so you're dealing with the very
1: biggest publishers of games typically. So for Call of Duty, so Modern Warfare, and for Warzone, you're looking at Activision Blizzard, who are massive. Another interesting feature. In fact, this this has just occurred to me now. So one of the things that Microsoft has been doing recently is Microsoft is basically buying lots of publishers. Okay. And the reason that they're doing this, which I don't know if you still have your Xbox, Ian.
0: I do, actually. So
1: you may have come across Game Pass. Yep. So they are massively upping their offering by buying pretty much everyone and Mm -hmm. stopping... Sony from doing the same. I mean, Sony is just a differently sized company to Microsoft. Microsoft is so huge. Sony, you know, really can compete, but can't compete in the same amount of money spend. And mm. so I wonder whether with Microsoft pulling all of these publishers together, maybe Microsoft gets involved because it has such, such resources and its risk exposure will be, or could be so high. If mm. it starts seriously advancing the esports aspect of Game Pass, that maybe that's the way we come to some kind of regulation. But um, it's, it's really, yeah, the, the, the multinational aspect. Yeah, you have these multinational companies. Do they want to get involved? Because that, that's the other aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big obligation, picking up the safeguarding obligation.
0: But I wonder who else would pick it up there. That's the problem. I mean, if you think about Facebook, so Facebook have have started building into their commercial offering issues to do with political probity, uh, avoiding safeguarding issues on the platform. Uh, and that is something which is a company they're starting to think about with you know various different things to do with human rights, freedom of speech. Yeah. Protecting free and fair elections uh, and trying to stop trafficking in informants of abuse. And they've done that by, you know, putting in place regulatory structures of their own. Those regulatory structures we know are still under the microscope of most uh, major Western governments are very much looking at those structures and and questioning them.
1: Yeah.
0: So we're almost walking. I mean, I don't want to sound dramatic about this. But we're almost walking potentially into a safeguarding disaster, aren't we, in respect of esports?
1: I I think that is a real possibility. One of the things with traditional sports that we saw was, well, when did the safeguarding come in traditional sports? And it was post-catastrophe,
0: essentially. It was. So you see
1: the catastrophes happen and the frameworks are put in place. But that isn't a safeguarding mindset, right? That is not how safeguarding no. is meant to work. You've got to
0: be thinking, looking forwards. And but also, I mean, if you think about it, if, if you think about football again, I, I don't want to, you know, turn this into a football episode. But <laughs> but, but you think about the Sheldon report, right? So yeah. the Sheldon report is it, is a report that looks at various different parts of football, safeguarding issues that relate to it. It is something that is is locally um, commissioned by FIFA, put together. Uh, sorry, locally commissioned by the FA, put together. Who does the commissioning? Who who commissions the equivalent of the Sheldon Report in esports? Who takes responsibility? Who who insists that the uh, publishers take responsibility? There's nobody to insist it apart from an international body. Yeah, and one of the things I spoke to one of my other guests about on the show is what do we what do we do? What is the which which of the international bodies? is the international body that we would expect to take up esports and to regulate it. We, could, we wouldn't ask the IOC to do it because it's not an Olympic sport, unless you can tell me I'm wrong about that. Not yet, is, is the not, way I, I'd say not, okay. not yet. There, <laughs> well, I think, let's face it, Dan, there's a, there's a long list of sports that want that title. So, okay, not at the moment, I fully accept that. So we we'd be looking at one of the other international bodies to take this on and to say to the publishers you have to do something about it and that's a that's a big thing to ask it's a, it's another but it, it's going to have to be done surely yeah i agree
1: i something has to happen the the thing with the games as well there might be an interesting contrast to be drawn here in some of the games right so we mm-hmm. do have fifa which is one of the preeminent e sports and i do wonder there whether you could see a world in which the football regulators pick up e-sports football. Wow, that's interesting. That would be an interesting... I, I, I don't see any drive... Sorry, drive's the wrong word. I don't see any, you know, the push for it where currently... I don't see anyone saying, oh, yeah, this is seriously on the cards. Oh, but well, you're
0: saying it now. I mean, it's, it's well, a really good point. Well, you're <laughs> saying, No, 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 no. I, I mean this, seriously. You're saying, here is football internationally. We have one of the most famous games of all time is called FIFA. Why does FIFA not say that our obligations in sport in real life apply as equally to e-sport, because we would say that in respect of other things. We would say it in respect of, you know, respecting each other. We wouldn't expect people to be racist when they were playing FIFA online. Mm. Yeah. So surely we could try, you know, we take parts of the game uh, and we should apply it in real life as much as we do it with e-sport, surely.
1: So if we were to go down that route, which I I think is quite an interesting proposition, one then says, ah, yes, but who's your regulator for Call of Duty? I know, I know, it doesn't work, does it? The fix is pretty narrow because how many high-level competitive games revolve around a video game version of a traditional sport Mm. is pretty low, um, unfortunately. Mm. So then we come back to, well, who should be the international regulator? If we're dealing with children as the first risk, could yeah. you see a world in which someone like UNICEF starts? I, I know it can't be; it's not really going to regulate, but starts really pushing.
0: Well, pushing who? Exactly, they'd have to push the. They'd have to push the publishers.
1: It would have to be the publishers, which I mean, it may not be as crazy as it initially sounds because the publishers do commonly operate regulatory arms in respect of the tournament aspects of their games. Okay. So for some games, certainly, and for some publishers, they exercise actually quite a lot of control on, over the games when they're played as a tournament. And you might say, well, if these publishers are putting tournaments together or offering their game as a tournament game, they are the ones creating the underlying source of this risk, right? They're creating yeah. a world in which we then want to build these teams. We want to get people involved at the professional level and... I mean, obviously, casual sport is as much of a safeguarding risk as professional sport. Sure, of course it is. But there is the intensity and the frameworks and the time spend that comes with professional sport where you might see that safeguarding come first with professional and filter down, possibly. And so if they're creating that risk or facilitating the creation of that risk... Maybe mm-hmm. that's where the, I don't know, moral obligation for them to step in and do something comes from. But maybe it's we go back to right what we were saying at the start. It's the commercial risk. If their mm. game comes to be known as the one, which is the high-risk one for people playing, that damages their bottom line, big time. And maybe that is where we see the involvement.
0: From a, from a perspective of risk avoidance rather than anything yeah. else. I mean, it's not a particularly virtuous reason to get
1: involved in safeguarding, but safeguarding is safeguarding. We need some, basically.
0: So, it's, it's a slightly strange question, but so who advises, who, who goes to these commercial publishers and says to them, you've got a problem here? Your average commercial lawyer isn't going to be, oh, no offence to them, but they're not going to be steeped in in safeguarding, are they? Yeah, I those commercial lawyers may be very well
1: placed to advise and say, look, we need to get someone in. Maybe it's only one person, maybe it's a couple of people in to advise us on the risks that we're facing from a safeguarding perspective and then they come in and start saying well look you could look at building together these policies, you could look to get together with your um, publisher friends and just all say we'll all put some money in to develop an external third party regulator Um, or you really push for bringing in lots of lawyers because it is going to be lawyers and professionals in the safeguarding industry to start building the frameworks for them but Yeah, I mean, the advice has got to come from their professional advisors or their investors who are seeing the risk. But if they're seeing the risk, that probably means safeguarding events, problematic safeguarding events have already occurred.
0: In terms then of commercial risk making a difference and putting this on the map, trying to avoid the point where the risks eventuate, what do you think is your number one thing that could stop... uh, a safeguarding risk from eventuating within esports?
1: Currently? Yep. I think, currently, the way of going about it is the way that you see with a couple of the very high-level teams currently. Because they have essentially said, we've had enough, we're going to do something. So we saw this last couple of years with Fnatic. They have now, and they've got very good legal counsel um, advising them, who I've spoken to before, Andy Cook and others. Um, They have got people involved to build a safeguarding framework within their team. They have the documents. I've read their documents. They have the policies. They have the list of people who need to be DBS checked. They have the appeal structure for when you get a safeguarding event. They have Mm. the internal judicial management, if judicial can be used in that way, to offer that protection to their team. And it makes sense. I mean, if they're trying to attract the best people, those best people who are players, who might be 16, 17, 18, don't want to be joining a team of massive risk. Or at least their parents won't want them to be joining a team of massive risk. So I think in the immediate short term, that is where you're going to see the changes, is teams wising up and going the way of Fnatic and others. In the longer term, I think you even either see the teams doing this and publishers or even ESIC, if it continues to grow, wises up and starts doing this. Or you see actual safeguarding problems occurring or, you know, starting to come out of the woodwork that your funders then start pressing the panic button and saying, we need to do something. Um, But if you're not involved at the very ground level, so if you're not on the teams dealing with the teams, dealing with the players... I don't know if they're seeing the risk in the way that we would because we're, you know, we're experienced in it from Mm. the whole
0: host of things that we do.
1: But if you aren't in that, in the
0: know, how do you even know if that makes sense? How do you know that safeguarding is even something that you need to have on your radar?
1: Yeah. And we know that. We know that's a problem because it was the case for sport 20 years ago.
0: If you want to know more about the work that we do at 39 Essex, visit visitors at 39essex.com. If you want to connect with us on socials, then you can add me, Ian Brownhill, on Twitter at Council Tweets. You can add the podcast at safe underscore cast and you can connect with the public law team at 39 public law. Join us next time for Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast, available where you download your podcasts.
1: Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com.